Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Sherry Rose. Sherry is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. Sherry, welcome to the Twimble AI podcast. Thank you for having me. It is great to have a chance to chat with you. I'm looking forward to digging into uh, your background and your research and uh, the things you're doing related to COVID to help out there. You know, let's start at the beginning. How did you become interested in machine learning and and the intersection of that and uh, healthcare. I always was very interested in science and mathematics and physics, and I didn't really have a good sense of how you could use that to solve problems when I was uh, going to college. And it was during college that I was exposed to this uh, summer program called the Summer Institute for Training in Biostatistics. Ah. And it really it really sounded like what I was interested in, which was bringing quantitative reasoning and thinking to problems in health and public health. And I realized very quickly that I needed more than my bachelor's degree uh, in statistics in order to really solve a lot of those problems. And I didn't actually get any training in machine learning in my bachelor's degree. I graduated in 2005 and the curriculum definitely did not include it at that point. And so when when I went to graduate school at UC Berkeley in biostatistics, that's where I saw the, the benefit of having really general frameworks in which to solve problems. And that's when I started working on non-parametric machine learning and having these kind of big picture ways to attack big problems in population health. And that was, for me, that's been both machine learning in non-parametric models for prediction, but also causal inference. And the driver for me was really the ability to use these flexible tools to solve uh, hard problems in, in healthcare, in medicine. It must have been helpful having that undergrad in stats. It's it's been very helpful. I actually <laughs> I actually started as a mechanical and aerospace engineering major, uh-huh. and I I did not feel very invigorated by the coursework there. Um, and I free body to- force diagram. <laughs> <your thing? laughs> uh, I also was a little frustrated that I was often the only woman in the classes, uh-huh. and it just it there was a lot of reasons why it didn't feel like the right fit for me. I ended up taking my second semester in college a statistics course, and I immediately saw how statistics could be used for solving lots of different problems mm-hmm. and engineering can as well. But for me, the statistics was really how I saw bringing all of my interests together. You mentioned non-parametric machine learning. What is that and how does that relate to uh, both the broader field as well as the healthcare field? Yeah. So when I talk about non-parametrics, I mean it in the very uh, broad statistical sense, a non-parametric model is a larger model space where we're making many fewer assumptions. And whereas with parametric models, more standard parametric models, we might be making really strict assumptions about the functional form, the underlying unknown functional form of the data. With non-parametrics, I want to really have um, a, a large model space so I have a much better opportunity to uncover the truth with my machine learning estimator. Mm, So meaning like you're not assuming a normal distribution, which has a couple of parameters, a mean and a standard deviation. It could be anything. Definitely not. Definitely not. (laughs) 
<laughs> that would be a limiting assumption in your work? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and most of the data that I work with does not conform to those types of strict assumptions. Talk a little bit more about the scope of your research interests and where you apply machine learning. It sounds like you are interested both in the kind of the systematic issues, the the healthcare system with the you know prov- the relationships between the providers and the payers, uh, as well as clinical issues. Absolutely. So in health services research, we're really interested in the whole broad scope of the healthcare system that includes costs, quality, access to providers and services, and also health outcomes following care. So that clinical piece often comes into the health outcomes following care. And some of the major areas that I've worked in intersect with the health spending aspects, the financing aspects like mental health and telemedicine and um, cardiovascular treatments all of these things intersect within this system that relies on, you know, the the cost, the quality, and the access to providers. So I, uh, it, it's it's a really having a research program that encompasses both pieces of that can allow you to ask and answer questions in in more integrated ways. It's it's difficult, but I find that you if you if you understand the, those underlying systems and try and bring them into your work when you're looking at clinical work. Um, it can really help you uh, inform better answers. And, and when you are looking at those kinds of questions, are you primarily trying to you know, understand or influence? Great question. So a lot of the work that I do, we are trying to understand some kind of phenomena in the system, but influence, yes, in the sense that we're trying to inform policy. Mm-hmm. So understanding the comparative effectiveness of multiple different types of treatments, I, I, I would like to understand which treatments have better health outcomes. But if we find a particular treatment has um, very bad outcomes, we want to inform policy um, to the FDA or to the relevant mm-hmm. stakeholder in order to potentially have that treatment you know, removed from the market. And we're uh, talking towards the end of April. Uh, Many of us have been in some form or another of lockdown due to COVID. You mentioned that your dog may start barking at any time. (laughs) He may, he may. (laughs) My neighbor just, I think my neighbor has finished cutting the grass now. Um, (laughs) You know, this is just, you know, the times, but it sounds like your work intersects with COVID as well. Can you talk about that intersection a little bit? Absolutely. Um, A large focus of my work, because I'm so integrated in starting with the substantive problem and bringing either Mm -hmm. existing machine learning tools or developing new machine learning tools to answer those questions, it, it really, there has to be this strong grounding in data. And the coronavirus pandemic has really uh, illuminated for a lot of people how much we need to care about data. And I, I, I mean, we have misclassification, we have um, missingness in the types of data that we're collecting for coronavirus, both for cases and mortality counts. And these are things that are very, very common in most of the electronic Uh, health data that we use in the healthcare system, where a lot of my work has focused on dealing with some of these types of issues. I mean, we use billing claims, we use um, clinical records, registry data, and and on and on. And these data types were not designed for research. And so we need to be really aware of the issues in these types of, uh, of data 
And some of the newer forms of data like wearable and implantable technology um, that people have been very excited about measuring physical activity we're now using in the coronavirus pandemic, uh, you know, smartphone location data to try and understand how people are um, social distancing or with potentially with contact tracing, and then digital types of data like Google search trends and Twitter data, which has been used for different types of research questions in the past. Now Google is developing and has released this location history website where they're showing about you know, how we can understand social distancing. And so a lot of the data-related work that I've been focused on is very relevant to the pandemic and understanding our data sources and trying to bring rigorous, flexible methods to them. Specifically, I had been working the last two years with um, my now former postdoctoral fellow, who's an infectious disease expert, Maya Majumder, who's now faculty at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We had been looking at news media data, CDC data, and electronic health data to understand the generalizability of these data sources for both infectious disease and chronic disease. Mm -hmm. And now this has become very, very relevant to the coronavirus pandemic. We had been, one of the conditions we'd been studying was was flu-like illnesses and understanding, you know, what electronic health data sources like billing claims uh, and electronic health records, what we can really understand from these data sources. And We've seen people, um, many people now start modeling and making projections about cases and uh, death counts. What we're going to start seeing next once people start having access to different types of electronic health uh, resources is trying to use this data to understand, you know, to predict outcomes, maybe to predict clinical courses, or Mm -hmm. to try and do causal inference, which is even more difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very, very important that people understand the limitations of these data sources. And so that's one of the things that we're working on. And hopefully, the, the, the first paper from that work will be able to release in the next coming weeks. But um, this is this is something that's relevant for the coronavirus pandemic, but has been, you know, a problem going back, you know, decades is using data that people don't understand. And that's been a, a at the forefront of my work is really making sure, especially, you know, with the theme of uh, one of the themes of this podcast, machine learning, a lot of people get very excited about machine learning and they throw a tool at data without understanding the data. And we are now in the midst of something where it's really crucial that people do not do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just had a, a panel discussion, a Tumal Live discussion earlier this week on responsible data science and the fight against COVID-19 and talked quite extensively about this issue. And you know, a lot of the the panel initially grew out of the reactions I was seeing to, you know, folks jumping in, wanting to, you know, help out, produce dashboards and models. And then you'd have this kind of counter reaction of folks saying, hey, you know, you're not an epidemiologist, stay in your lane kind of thing, mm-hmm. which I kind of object to, to a large degree, because, you know, A, people want to help and B, you know, people, you know, want to learn and, and you know, everyone's bringing something. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the stakes are high. And even if you're an expert, it's easy to get things wrong. Absolutely. Because the data is, you know, as you mentioned, everyone's reporting different things. The The data is messy. You know, talk a little bit more about the kinds of things you're, you're seeing in the data. And you mentioned you have a paper coming out. Is the, the objective of this paper to 
try to kind of quantitatively, qualitatively provide measures for data quality as applied to some of these use cases? Or what exactly are you uh, trying to do with this paper? Yeah, this this first paper, one of the main things that, that people will see, and this is true of, of most health conditions, but particularly among infectious diseases, is that in billing claims, in electronic health records, you will see undercounts of infectious disease conditions. And so using this data and not understanding all of the different reasons why we might undercount a particular health condition, um, it, is, it would be very problematic. So one of the things that we will do um, uh, in, in this work is try to quantify, and we've got multiple years of data, and so we can show trends over time, quantifying this undercounting in electronic health data for uh, influenza-like illnesses. And But this is even true of chronic diseases. We see with chronic diseases that one of the, in order to be counted in an electronic health database, you have to have an encounter with the healthcare system. And we know that there's many reasons why people may not have an encounter with the healthcare system. We know that people in rural communities whose hospitals have closed may not have an encounter. We know that people who do not have insurance or are low income may have uh, additional barriers to getting uh, to, to having care. Is the issue that the records that we do have undercount because folks, there are folks out there that, you know, contract COVID and don't interface with the healthcare system? Or is it that even of those folks that are interfacing with the healthcare system, they're systematic uh, undercounting for some reasons? It's both. It's both. So not ever, so not, we won't see people who don't have an encounter with the healthcare system. And even people who do have an encounter with the healthcare system, we, they may not be coded. So there's now an ICD-10 code, which is a billing code for health conditions, uh, there will be people who have coronavirus who will not be coded as having coronavirus, even though they have an encounter with the healthcare system. And there will be many reasons for this, including the fact that we don't have enough testing. Um, But there's Mm -hmm. lots of reasons why somebody might not have a code. They might get coded for something else. They might get coded for flu instead of coronavirus. Mm -hmm. They might get coded for just a higher level. And then we're going to have people who are coded for coronavirus who don't actually have it. So there's going to be a misclassification in both directions. So you're supposed to wait for a positive test. But again, because there's so so little testing, a physician might be inclined to code somebody for coronavirus if they're a suspected case without a confirmed test, or because there's such a delay in getting the test results back. And so when you're trying to characterize this type of undercounting, uh, does machine learning come into play there? And if so, what are the tools that you're using? So um, right now, this is not using, uh, this is not a prediction question, a causal inference question yet. The, the types just of a data quality question. This is a data quality question. And, okay. and, and so there's data science techniques that go into this. For example, when we need to use different types of um, uh, data aggregation methods in order to, you know, extract data from PDFs when we're comparing to maybe CDC resources. At least, not the first the first component of it. One of the things that we're, we've that has been part of this project for the last two years has been uh, we wanted to understand the impact of of uh, news deserts on infectious disease outbreaks, and we have a lot of different types of data in order to understand uh, communities where their uh, local newspapers have closed, and it will be interesting over the long term to see how that 
whether that will even matter for the coronavirus, given that it's a global pandemic. And that's not necessarily how people are becoming aware of, of the, the pandemic. And that's not necessarily the way that we're counting cases anymore. With much, with much smaller outbreaks, local news media is, is really vital in informing the community and also for researchers to use those local news reports to get uh, another source of, of case counts. So not just informing the the community of citizens, but informing mm-hmm. the medical community. There's not a back channel of, you know, hey, be on the lookout for this disease. Mm-hmm. Or if there is, it's inefficient. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm, I, I guess I'm, I'm highlighting that the the local news media data is is another resource. It's another way that we find out about outbreaks when they're smaller outbreaks, and it's another way for researchers to again. There's no gold standard. Um, there's limitations in uh, infectious disease outbreaks in the data from the CDC, from an electronic, um, you know, billing claims resource. Uh, from local news media data. And so one of the overarching goals of this this project that had been ongoing was really to understand the generalizability of all these data sources and try to quantify how we could leverage multiple data sources to get at accurate case counts. And then more broadly, when you're applying machine learning to these types of problems, uh, I'm curious about the tools that you end up using. You mentioned causality, Mm -hmm. uh, causal inference. I saw in... Uh, maybe the publications page on your site, which of course we'll link to in the show notes picture where you have your, it looks like you are trying to relate the, you know, cost of different interventions. Uh, so you've got some baseline formula and then, you know, mental health as a broad category of intervention, maybe, and then substance use. You can tell me what you're actually saying in this diagram. <laughs> um, and then you've got, uh, increases and decreases of mm-hmm. compensation, actually. So that may not be cost. Um, but it, it kind of strikes me that you're looking at, it's you're applying causal inference and you're looking at interventions. Yeah, so um, I, I'd, I'd have to confirm uh, which diagram that was, but I, I believe it's probably from one of the studies where we're, we're examining the impact of different types of payment models in the healthcare system. Okay. And to understand the impact of, you know, changing how spending occurs and and the different types of what we call spending models. You know, we have payment systems in the U.S. where sometimes we have sort of what we call a a bundled payment, a certain specific amount for a particular type of procedure and other types of spending models where we have, you know, fee for service, every single thing that you um, do, whether it's a, a lab or a procedure um, it has a particular dollar amount uh, attached to it. And so then the incentive, of course, is if you're getting a fee for service is to have many, many services. And so a number of the, the studies that I've, I've, um, I've worked on is trying to understand the impact of, of these types of spending models. But one thing that I will highlight that I think a lot of people who don't work in health economics may not realize is that the impact of changing um, either, you know, improving how we allocate funding in the healthcare system or the impact of different funding models has the potential to improve human health. So it's not an exercise in trying to save money at the cost of human health. It's really about more efficiently serving people such that we can improve human health. And one of the areas where we've seen this is in mental health care, where over, you know, the the second half of the the 
the decade, uh, sorry, the second half of, of um, in, you know, 1950 to, to 2000, we saw that the, the vast majority of improvements in uh, mental health treatment really came from changes in the financing of, of healthcare and improve, it's things that led to improvements in access. And so it wasn't necessarily new treatments. But as far as the types of methods that I work on, so a lot of the work that I do in causal inference is focused on um, ensembling methods. So bringing together multiple algorithms so we don't have to rely on a single algorithm. So especially when different types of algorithms become the new flashy tool. So when I was in grad school, it was random forest. And now it's, you know, deep learning and neural networks. And everyone's like, should I do a regression or should I do a random forest? And I say, you can do both and more <laughs> by incorporating, you know, rigorous ensemble techniques by using multiple algorithms and a priori specified metrics. And then within causal inference, you know, we bring these ensembles into so-called uh, double robust estimation. So we don't just use information from an outcome regression. We also use information for estimating what the, you know, the, the probability that you would have been treated. And so a functional form for that, a flexible fun functional form for that. And so I've co-authored two books on this topic. And really a lot of my research has focused on bringing double robust methods and machine learning together, and again, integrating that into health services research and really trying to develop tools to specifically answer questions in health services research. Uh, you mentioned rigorous ensemble methods. What does that mean uh, for an ensemble method to be rigorous and how does one achieve the, the requisite level of rigor. Yes. So I, I threw in rigorous because anytime I mention ensemble techniques, I'm always a little bit concerned that, that for people who might be unfamiliar, and I mentioned an a priori metrics that's being rigorous, but we really have to decide upfront. If we're going to run multiple algorithms, we really need to specify upfront what they will be, how they will be evaluated. We need to incorporate cross-validation Meaning as opposed to I'm working on a Kaggle competition, I'm going mm -hmm. to throw mm -hmm. every model I can think of against yeah. this data set and see which produces the best accuracy on my uh, test set? Well, you could do that if you make sure to choose beforehand that accuracy is going to be your metric and you incorporate cross-validation. We can come uh -huh. back to why leaderboard uh, accuracy is bad. Okay. Uh, single metric, single metrics is another one of the, the things, you know, I get... Data quality is a, is a soapbox for mine. Single metrics is another. But I, I, throw, I threw in the word rigorous because I, a problem that you see a lot is people run an algorithm and then they tweak it and they run it again, or they run multiple algorithms, but they run them in sequence and then they try another thing. And so it's almost, P hacking. Yeah, it's the, the machine problem. learning version of P hacking. Yeah. And once you start touching the data, that's your mm -hmm. estimator. And I really feel like you need to, you need to be really upfront about what your estimator is going to be, what your metrics are going to be. And, you know, a single metric is often not going to be sufficient. You can get a really high accuracy and have incredibly poor true positive rate. And I mean, and a lot of our, pro a lot of the problems that we're dealing with, you know, and a lot of the, unfortunately, a lot of the papers that we see in, you know, clinical medicine and health services research and health outcomes, now that people are starting to bring machine learning to this space, a lot of the papers are very much that, oh, our, we, got a, we got an accuracy of uh, 0.97 versus the, the parametric regression was 0.95. And that, that type of a difference, you haven't explained whether it's meaningful, you haven't looked at any other metrics, you've usually only used a single data set and a single medical center 
And suddenly they make these big broad claims that it can be useful in clinical practice, which is is dangerous, is, is frankly dangerous. And when you put it in a clinical journal, um, I, the standards need to be really, really high for clinical research and, and making claims with machine learning. And that's a lot of the work is not what I would call rigorous. And this would be also be very, very true of the coronavirus when we're putting these papers out there, they, you know, this, the speed cannot, cannot be an excuse for lack of rigor. One of the things you said was that when you apply a model to your data, that's your estimator or something along like along those lines. Elaborate on that. What does that mean? So start touching your data. That's, that's, that's an estimator. So you need to incorporate all of that uns- that uncertainty into what does it um, mean for, for that to be an estimator? So, so, for example, in the the p hacking scenario, if you run a regression and then you you know change it, run it again, change it, run it again, so now you've run it three times. Well, that those three time that whole thing is your estimator it's not the last regression that you ran mm-hmm. but normally what people would do is they would publish that last regression they ran with the standard errors based on having only run that single regression which means the standard errors aren't correct and so the second you start touching your data the second you run any kind of algorithm mm-hmm. that you need to build that into your estimator mm-hmm. so if you do a multiple stages of estimation you need to account for that and that's why, you know, for a prediction problem, that's why you should just state all of your your estimators up front, run them all together in an, in, you know, and we have both finite sample and asymptotic properties that allow us to, you know, know that this will have good statistical properties. But this this iterative cherry picking of running algorithms can really lead to spurious results. Uh, in the machine learning community, we often describe the fundamental process as one that is inherently iterative where engineering features and trying out models and you know that's that's just the job and how do you reconcile that with what you're describing here I think you need to be really clear when your analysis is hypothesis generating. So if you really are doing exploratory data analysis, be mm-hmm. very clear about that. If you're doing feature selection, if you're trying to discover relationships, if you're doing something that's unsupervised learning and you're trying to discover groups, mm-hmm. we'll be very clear about that. If you're then going to use those groups to divide, to find some uh, causal intervention, again, you need to incorporate the uncertainty and how those groups were defined. So I think the transparency of of what you're doing and what the goal is 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 absolutely paramount. And in you, if you get into a place where you're then trying to do causal inference, then again we, we can't have this sort of uh, cherry picking iterative style because then our the reliability of the results are are going to be very flawed. Mm-hmm. Causal inference is sometimes presented as a a tool that solves the kind of problems you're describing kind of by its very nature. It's you know, more rigorous in, in uh, some way than kind of the general, the other stuff that people do. But it sounds like there are lots of pitfalls and, and opportunities to do it wrong. Yeah, I think that the, the same way that there are some people who think that, you know, electronic health record data is the gold standard data and has no issues, which is false. Um, <laughs> there may be some people who think causal inference is this, 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 this area that is um, 
does magic not have and pixie dust. magic and pixie dust. And it really, it really isn't. So again, you need causal inference is difficult. You, the, the, the underlying research question is, should be driving whether it's causal inference or not. If you're interested in a prediction question or an effect question, that should really be guiding um, what types of techniques you need to use. But that you can have really terrible causal analyses the same way you can have really terrible prediction analyses or clustering analyses and the transparency about what your assumptions are, uh, what the limitation of, of the, of your data are, all of that is just something that needs to be uh, upfront. And it's something that uh, I, I mean, that we recently had a, a workshop in the fall back when we we gathered in groups of people at the at the national academies and uh, i was really advocating for us we need to have as a research community um you know a baseline of stand for machine learning research especially in 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 the clinical medicine mm -hmm. and when we when we have prediction research when we have causal inference research in these clinical journals the standards need to be incredibly high and at a minimum we need to be very, very transparent. Right. We need to share code. We need to be very explicit about what the causal assumptions are and when they might uh, not hold. And creating a culture around this that's much less about having magic flashy results and much more about genuine discovery and um, having incredibly clear, probably appendices about these issues, mm -hmm. but having that be the standard. Code sharing is... I think just uh, starting to catch on and um, become a, uh, I don't know if it's even one would say an accepted practice uh, at the NeurIPS conference for the past couple of years, they've, uh, there's been a repeatability effort that has encouraged researchers to submit papers with code. I've got to imagine perhaps less so in the, you know, more traditional sciences, statistics, uh, medicine, or? I, I don't speak out of turn. So I'll just say this is my impression. I, I am a journal co-editor for one of the journals in statistics, the journal Biostatistics. We, mm -hmm. Our standard is that you have to share code when you publish. Oh, really? And a, a number of statistics awesome. journals have this now. So I think we might be a little bit ahead of the machine learning community. There might be a little bit more buy-in. Yeah. But that's just my perception. Okay. I would say in the clinical journals, it's not it's it's very early stages to have that that be um, something that people think is reasonable and expected to do. And some of this has been helpfully driven by funders, where they require that every project you might do in the clinical space that you have to share code. And, mm -hmm. and I think that this is something else that I brought up at that National Academies workshop was we need, we need funders, we need journals. The researchers will do it if they're forced to do it. Mm -hmm. and, and we need to get allies um, on our side to, to make that happen because it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily going to, to keep erroneous results from being published, but again, it's that transparency. And, with with high impact work, with all of the work we were doing before the coronavirus and now that we have the coronavirus, when data can be reasonably shared and not all data can be shared. So uh, a lot of electronic health data cannot be shared because of privacy considerations. But, but many of the data sources um, with coronavirus can be shared. And if it can be shared, it should be shared the same way your code should be shared. 
and that should be that should be the standard. We started talking about single metrics and leaderboard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I felt like you wanted to jump in there. We didn't quite jump in there. <laughs> um, I well, we we did touch on it a, a bit a, 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 in my frustration of what seems to be published in. Um, not just clinical journals, but other journals. And I, and I say this in a critical sense. I mean, if you go back five years and look at some of my papers, I was pu- publishing a single metric as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you recently had a podcast about algorithmic fairness. And so one of the other areas that I work in is algorithmic fairness. And so not only do we need multiple metrics of, of global fit, mm-hmm. like your accuracy or your AUCs and your R squareds, they tell us different things, but we also really need to center group fit mm-hmm. and understanding how a particular algorithm might further marginalize already marginalized groups. And in the healthcare system, we have many different groups that we already know are marginalized individuals with mental health and substance use disorders, individuals in rural communities, Black and African American individuals. There's a lot of groups that we need to make sure that if we're saying in a clinical paper, this algorithm should be deployed. And again, I already mentioned the fact that there's lots of other issues in that paper, a single medical center, um, not using cross-validation, et cetera, et cetera. But they also haven't looked. They're saying use this when they haven't studied the harms of that algorithm. What are the potential harms? And one of the ways that we can assess that is with metrics of group fit. So What's the current state of that in clinical practice? Almost non-existent. I mean, the, the concept of, of studying algorithms for issues of fairness is, is starting to make a dent. But when you look at published papers, the vast, vast, vast majority of published papers in, in clinical journals do not even consider it. What's your sense for what it will take to resolve that? Is it, you know, just time or what are the things that you're doing in the the worlds that you influence and in the journals that you mentioned to try to drive the community um, mm-hmm. towards considering those kinds of metrics? I'm excited to see um, more people working on algorithmic fairness in the health space. This is something that historically a number of the conferences in in fairness have not had any papers on health. And so I had previously submitted some. Yes. And so it was only maybe two years ago that I saw the first paper. It's like, oh, they took a paper in health. Um, And one of my papers that was recently published in a statistics journal in biometrics on um, uh, fair regression for healthcare spending, that paper was rejected from one of the the top uh, fairness conferences. And so I had been trying to kind of bring these issues to some of the existing fairness conferences. I'm glad to see that the last two years, there's more Mm -hmm. health work at these conferences. There's also some newer conferences um, incorporating both people working in health and people working in fairness. So I do think that there are a number of people now in the fair, there's, there's a, a, a growing um, consortium of people who care about fairness specifically in the health space. And uh, I'm excited to see everyone in that community who's really trying and, and actively working to make sure that it, it, um, it, it gets more attention, especially given the fact that the, the healthcare system is just one of the biggest levers in, in the country that can have an impact on social policy. And so if we bring out rhythms into this huge system without really vetting them for these issues. We can make people who are already incredibly marginalized um, much less healthy. And so I've 
I'm speaking at a conference this summer, which I'm assuming will be virtual, one of these conferences, the Chill Conference. And I'm really thankful for, for the, to the organizers who are really pushing forward uh, this endeavor. And I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm also concerned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the paper that you mentioned, Fair Regression for Healthcare Spending, mm -hmm. um, you know, let's talk a little bit about that. What are the goals uh, and, you know, what is fair regression? How does one achieve fair regression? So there were, there were two main goals of this paper. So the methodological goal was that a lot of the work in algorithmic fairness um, and meth both for methods and definitions really focused on binary outcomes. And there was very little work um, in continuous outcomes. And so a, a large portion of my work is in healthcare spending, which is a bounded continuous outcome. And so we developed some new fair regression methods for continuous outcomes and also compared them to the few methods that already existed. Um, but what, what is to group fairness or some other type of, yeah. So with, uh, relative to, to various measures of group fairness and also global fit. And, um, so what fairness, uh, means for healthcare spending is that the formulas that we use to, um, pay health plans, uh, are called risk adjustment formulas. And these aim to distribute healthcare funds based on health. But unfortunately, health plans can discriminate against groups, including those that are defined by certain health conditions. I mentioned one group earlier that I've worked on a lot, uh, individuals with mental health and substance use disorders. So they, if these groups are um, currently costly to the insurer. So any group that is costly um, incentivizes the health insurer to um, discriminate against them through various mechanisms, like changing which providers are available to enrollees or the cost of the copay of certain prescription drugs. So our goal is was to make sure uh, was to try and create regressions uh, formulas that were um, fairer in the sense that undercompensated groups would be less likely to be discriminated against. So if we could um, redistribute the funds within the formula such that individuals with mental health and substance use disorders were not massively undercompensated, then the insurers would have less of an incentive to try and you know change their plans to harm those enrollees. And we found the, these regressions performed uh, incredibly well. We could improve fairness for groups by over, you know, something like 98%, while global fit was reduced by maybe 4%, just a, a very small loss of global fit for incredible improvements in uh, group fairness. And some of my continued work in that space, that, pa that paper was written with a PhD student, Anna Zink, we then, after that paper, collaborated with uh, our economist colleague, Tom McGuire, where we tried to look at not just a single group, but multiple groups and bringing together fair regression with other types of interventions in the healthcare system. And we, because we were concerned, okay, if we help, if we improve undercompensation for one group, what happens to other groups? And we found that by improving fairness for multiple groups, we picked four groups that we knew were undercompensated and we knew that insurers might have an incentive to uh, discriminate against them. By improving fairness for those four groups, we improved fairness for 88% of additional groups that we didn't even bring into the loss function. And 
we were also able to uh, reduce the number of variables that were needed in the formula by something like 60%. What's your intuition for why that works? Why does well, that happen? Well, so the, what it ends up doing is it takes funds away from, so there are people in the healthcare system that are overcompensated mm -hmm. because the formula expects them to have more expenses that, expenses that they don't have. So it mm -hmm. actually redistributes funds in a very smart way. So people who are healthy and are currently overcompensated, it moves that money to people who are being undercompensated. Mm -hmm. And so we're really excited about this. You mentioned, uh, you know, at the beginning of our discussion about, am I trying to, you know, is it is it about understanding or is it about influence? And and I'm I'm I've been working on uh, fairness methods and risk adjustment uh, methods for uh, a long time now, and we're we're really getting into a place where we're able to bring all of these advances together and mm. ma make recommendations at at a, at a certain point to not just in the U.S. There's many different health systems in the world that you that use risk adjustment formulas and. Uh, I'm excited about the potential to again to have such a, a a potential big impact on on a risk adjustment system um, that has can have a tremendous influence on improving health and social policy. That's that's great. Uh, before we wrap up, any other um, any parting thoughts or things that other things that you're excited about in the the space that you're working? Oh, uh, great question. Um, I, I think. Uh, I, my parting thoughts would be about reading research in general, but especially during a pandemic, read it with a critical eye. Uh, mm -hmm. Read things before you share them. I don't know if I'm naive or it's because I'm an elder millennial, but I think read things before you share them should really be the baseline. Um, <laughs> uh, but read, please read things before you share them and be careful about uh, ask questions when you're reading a, whether it's a coronavirus paper or it's a flashy machine learning paper in a clinical journal, what data source did they use? What are the, did they talk about any limitations of the data source? What kinds of metrics did they use? Did they, if they only used accuracy or AUC or R squared, that's a red mm -hmm. flag. You know, yeah. what, what's the true positive rate? What's the false positive rate? What are their conclusions? Are they overstated? How many, you know, what populations did they study? What does it mean for generalizability? Ask all of these questions, whether it's machine learning research or not. Just be 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 interested, be excited, but be skeptical and and thoughtful. Well, what I love about uh, your comment is that it doesn't require some kind of secret decoder ring, no. or, you know, years of statistical, you know, stats courses or what have you. It's you know, just asking, you know, being a critical reader and consumer mm -hmm. of, uh, of, you know, all the, the news and articles and, you know, journal papers that you're reading and just thinking broadly about, you know, the stuff that, uh, you know, the claims that they're making. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Sherry, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about what you're up to. Well, th thank you so much for chatting. Great. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.